4: The
3: Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
5: Monday morning, the 17th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. 38 hospitals look set to be brought to a standstill this Thursday because of a 24-hour strike. 10,000 members of the SIP2 Trade Union say more strike days will follow in the coming weeks in a dispute over pay. The dispute does not involve medical staff, but the impact of a strike on this scale will undoubtedly inhibit hospitals from providing services. Chefs and support staff say they are waiting on pay increases, which have been agreed to, but yet to be paid to them. Bernard Durkin is a Fine Gael TD and a member of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Health and joins us now. And a uh, very good morning to you, Deputy Durkin. Thanks for taking the time to be with us here. Uh, are you concerned about this action and uh, the disruption that undoubtedly will follow?
6: Yes, of course. Uh, morning, Michael, uh, to you and your listeners there. Of course, we're, we're concerned about uh, a possible strike. Any disruption in the, in the, in the supply of services uh, and for patients and the hospital staff themselves is, is something that we are obviously concerned about. The matter is for the WRC at the moment. Hopefully, the negotiations that are, that are taking place will be successful. And I think that's, uh, that there's only little time left, about three days left, within which to reach an agreement. But it is hugely important that agreement is reached. For a whole variety of reasons. First of all, to ensure the continuity of services for the patients, for, to ensure the continuity of the services provided by the hospitals uh, at a time when every every element of the services is at full stretch.
5: But a, a agreement on this has been reached uh, and on a number of, ca- of occasions uh, the government hasn't honoured uh, its uh, commitment to these pay increases
6: well that's why the 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 matter is, is before the w r c in an effort to try to iron out uh, the issues the outstanding issues and uh, with the view to ensuring that uh, you know what's always feared in situations like this that not effects don't 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 uh, don't don't follow and that's not at all taken away from 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 the merit or otherwise of the issues under consideration. I think the important thing for us to remember now is to try to do everything possible to ensure that the issues are resolved to the satisfaction of all mm. concerned. And that means that that we don't have an interruption of self.
5: Well, what is your understanding of uh, the outstanding issues? Is it that the government is welching on uh, a commitment uh, that was uh, given to these uh, staff members?
6: There are a number of issues uh, affecting uh, various elements of, of public services throughout the country, that uh, in the aftermath of, of FNP, uh that were on the one hand were covered by FEMPI and on other people's understanding, was that they, mm-hmm. weren't, that they weren't.
5: That's a, emergency legislation that correct, uh, reduced correct. the pay of correct. public service personnel. Yes, yeah.
6: and of course, mm-hmm. and 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 government's position has been at all times of being a little bit wary to try to ensure that whatever. Uh, solutions are found in all situations that we don't have a chain reaction and that as a result of that we have further erosion of the, the national finances and of course that's a matter that's under discussion at all times depending on who you speak But but the point to remember there is mm. is this the, 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 this is an essential service the services being provided through the, throughout the hospitals in the, in the country at large are essential services yeah. and we can't uh, afford uh, a breakdown uh, in, in, in the services for, 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 for whatever reason. Notwithstanding that, it's essential that government remains constant in the way it deals with all elements of, of pay to yeah. the public sector. If it doesn't, well, obviously, somebody's going to say, well, OK, we want parity with whatever arrangements have been arrived at uh, with, with some other sector, and then the whole change starts again. Uh, we, we, it's not in the public interest for that to happen for a whole lot of reasons. And a lot of people, I mentioned this at a recent uh, Health Committee meeting uh, when we were talking with consultants, you know, it may seem a long time ago since 2008 or 2011 or whatever the case may be, when the country was at mm. really, really dire straits. Mm. And it is, you know, we can say that we have achieved a great deal and we have achieved a great deal. We have climbed out of that, that particular ravine and we have begun to become independent economically again. And that's a great thing. But let's not forget, and this was accepted by the, by, by the people at, at the committee, that we can easily fall down into that uh, particular uh, valley once again, and we can't afford that either for a variety of reasons. First of all, for the reasons of all the population of the country, for all the, 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 the interests of the people in the public sector mm-hmm. and the private sector. So it's important that we deal... Fairly and honestly with the cases that come up.
5: But so is the government dealing fa- fairly and honestly with this, or is it acting in bad faith? No. I mean, well, this it's,
6: it's, it's, The government is not acting in bad faith. The government is has being... Been, has been, has been
5: right, we're talking about pay increases that were agreed.
6: Yes, well... The, pay increases that
5: were agreed the by the Department of, of Health and agreed by the HSE. That's
6: right. Well, if you talk, depending on whom, with whom you speak, and if, 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 if they were already agreed independently of the FEMP arrangements. And and if you speak with some the employer site, you'll find out that they say, Well, the in FEMP is part and parcel, whatever the case may be. I think that those things have to be all taken
5: into account and we don't want well, to I think there's some confusion on your part with respect to you. I mean, all of these things were taken into account and the HSE and the Department of Health went in and negotiated this job evaluation scheme with the representative of uh, the public service workers in this uh, particular dispute, uh, the SIPTU trade union members uh, and they came to an agreement. Uh, eventually they came to an agreement because uh, this has been ongoing since the spring of 2016 and it was only August of 2018 when the pay increases were agreed under this evaluation scheme and the members expected to receive their pay increases. But the government welched on that because the Department of Public Expenditure wouldn't fund it.
6: That's right, because the the Department of Public Expenditure have have issues with all pay increases that are independent of what took place at Semper, with the exception of those agreed within uh, particular uh, regime
5: has so, the hse or the department of health the authority to come to an agreement of this sort independently of uh, the department of public expenditure
6: well every wage increase or um alteration or whatever you, we want to call it is is subject to uh the the the, the um, um, Falling within the regime of, of, of the Minister of Finance under 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 uh, the, his, his second guy, his second hat that
5: requires his approval.
6: R- r- yes, of
5: course. Well, okay. So, so 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 then it's the HSE and the Department that acted in bad faith, is it rather than the government
6: well, it's in bad faith? It just so happens that. It, this particular. But these
5: people have been told they're going to get a pay increase by their well, employer.
6: They, they, yes, but subject to obviously subject to the agreement of. Uh, the minister for public expenditure reform. Everything, every every single pay, uh, increase in payment or request for an increase in payment goes before that in, in, into that particular heading. Um, excuse me, and 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 for approval. And if it gets approved,
5: okay. So, 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 what? Why is it that the HSC and the Department of Health were sent out to negotiate with the trade union? Why was it not the minister or his officials in the department for public expenditure that were sent out to do these?
6: Nobody gets sent out. People negotiate themselves, and while the negotiation takes place in the in the in the in in the they take place against the background of the approval of the minister. For 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 uh, public service reform and, and reform, and if, if if it falls within that, obviously it, it's quite okay. But there's an issue here, which is, is is this, and it is that that the people directly involved feel that their particular situation uh, wasn't catered for uh, in in the arrangements made heretofore with all the other agencies, and uh, because of that, it now falls to be discussed with, with, with the WRC. If the WRC, three more days within which to do it, I think it's important that we allow them to do that, to to examine and to exhaust all the avenues that are available to them, with a view to achieving a satisfactory solution. And by a satisfactory solution, I mean a satisfactory solution that will meet, insofar as is possible, the, 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 the requirements of the employers and the employees.
5: Well, what's the inqu- uh, requirement of, of the employer? Because uh, we know that the employees are looking for the pay increases they were promised in August of 2018.
6: That's correct. Don't forget this, that we... we, we that they
5: were promised by their employer last yeah, August.
6: Well, yes, well, the employer, the, uh, the employer and the employee fall within the sanction of the Minister for Public Service mm. and, and Reform. And as and, and such, uh, that department uh, will have to... Give its approval. It is deemed, obviously. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this situation that it doesn't. And I'm not on one side or the other, which which is the correct uh, um, interpretation. Mm. What I am saying is this. Is that it is at this these discussions being kind of set to the stage
5: right now? But you're really asking people to be very patient here. I, I mean, you were told uh, as a, an employee, look, we'll review this. An independent review was commissioned, undoubtedly at some cost. That completed it, its work. It made its recommendations. The recommendations were accepted by the employer in the shape of the Department of Health uh, and the HSE, and by the trade union, uh, and. Here we are uh, in June of 2019 and nothing has happened and the people feel forced to walk off the job, to withdraw their labour and feel as though they're not appreciated. Uh, the trade union representatives have said that they've been told by HSE officials uh, or government party uh, officials uh, that um, they're not not a, a vital part of d- delivering health services.
6: Right. Well, I don't think that they were uh, such. I think what has happened...
5: Well, if all the porters walk off the job on Thursday, there won't be any health service uh, to talk of it in the hospitals.
6: Well, we're not suggesting that the discussions have concluded yet. The discussions are ongoing now in in the WRC and because of that, I think it's important that we give them time. There's only three more days left. I think that if if the issues are important enough uh, to to, uh, be of national importance to bring the services in hospitals Mm. to a halt, well then it's important enough to have it discussed for the next three days, intensely focusing on the issues concerned with a view to coming to a conclusion that is within the re- within reason to, to the satisfaction of both sides. I don't hmm. think that's impossible. I think it is entirely possible and plausible and I think that we have to give them time to do that. But
5: is there anything other than Uh, fulfilling the commitment to these people that you would consider to be reasonable? They've been told they're to get a a pay rise. They've been waiting patiently since last August. Uh, And now they're withdrawing their labour, which means that come Thursday patients in hospital won't be fed because there's no chefs.
6: Well, this is not any pay dispute, you know, very often matters get down, right down to the wire. And heretofore, uh, the various discussions have been completed. And yes, you're right. Recommendations have been made. And yes, it hasn't been concluded yet because there hasn't been agreement on all sides. And as a result of that, uh, and you all know the situation that apply in relation to public health benefit and, and the reason to keep it under control at all times. So in, in, in line with that objective, uh, it is entirely feasible and plausible and understandable that the discussion is taking place at this moment in the WRC, allowed to conclude uh, without prejudice, uh, so that anything we say, I say, you say, or anybody else says, in the meantime, it's not going to in any way prejudice the outcome of those discussions. I think they're important discussions, important in themselves, mm. they're important by virtue of the extent
5: to which the well, I, I think the way the WRC works uh, as an independent body uh, I'm not sure that we could influence its thinking but I'm sure there's many people listening to us this morning who would believe uh, that when the government speaks you should be able to take it at its word and when people believe that the government has said we're going to give you a pay increase and then says but we're not going to pay for it ourselves uh, so it's not available to you that it, that's acting in bad faith
6: And and part of that process continues as we speak. And that's why we need to allow the process to continue in the WRC and hopefully, as a result of the next three days of intense discussions, that a a resolution will be found that allows uh, everybody's interest to be met insofar as can be done.
5: And if that isn't the case, if the strike goes ahead, uh, what... Do you think the impact would be for each <laughs> well, of the thirty-eight hospitals?
6: Yes, I, I think it would be unfortunate if we have a strike in any sector at the present time. The country is is attempting to recover.
5: It seems though that there's, there's no contingency plan. I'm, I'm just losing. Will
6: continue. Hopefully, will mm. continue. There will. There, there have been strikes in the health services before. Mm. And and you know the, 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 we have to cater for those as far as we can. Unfortunately, the patients and the people who are in the front line and all of these things, mm. very often patients who, who who may be have a serious uh, condition that that uh, any delay will be will would be serious for them and have long lasting consequences.
5: Do you believe Our appointments will need to be cancelled though and procedures uh, postponed well, and that sort of thing? Because there know. is no contingency plan as we speak.
6: Well. M- there hasn't many times in the past but we've been able to resolve these matters introduce logistics that will deal with the situation I'm quite confident in the event of failure and I'm not for one moment uh, suggesting that the WRC talks will end in failure that they're they're the, the, the area where the, the debate now stands and I think we—I don't think we should move to the end and say, "Well, okay, uh, if this doesn't go right, we have a serious problem." Of course, we have a serious problem. Yeah. But until such time as the discussions in hand are exhausted then we don't move to the next stage.
5: OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Fine Gael TD, Bernard Durkin is uh, a member of uh, the Oireachtas Health Committee. Michael
0: Reid on LMFM. FM.
5: The government will publish its uh, climate action plan to t- tackle climate breakdown later today. And uh, we'll talk about what you might expect in this plan with Eamon Ryan, who's the leader of uh, the Green Party, a TD for Dublin Bay South. Good morning to Eamon Ryan and thanks uh, for joining us here this morning uh, i suppose uh, a lot of journalists have seen this uh, if uh, the newspapers are anything to go by this morning uh, it seems as though an awful lot of detail is already being leaked
2: it has um but it's it's a complex subject and it's fairly extensive it affects a whole range of different areas so i'm sure there'll still be um stuff left to be dissected and analyzed uh, i i suppose there won't be too many surprises for a couple of reasons Firstly, what the government is saying, and I've been talking to Richard Bruton and others about this, Mm. is it will accept a lot of the recommendations that were in the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Climate Action report, which was published only a month or two ago. Um, If you remember, Michael, that that was founded, um, set up after the Citizens' Assembly looked at the issue, and they came up with with very strong recommendations as to what we should do. Uh, And the Joint Doctors' Commission was a cross-party examination of that, and it came out with um, what I think other people are saying. I I was involved myself, so I'm kind of Mm -hmm. slightly biased, but others said that it was probably one of the most impressive reports on what we needed to do on climate. So... I think if the government back that up and and implement a lot of the committee recommendations, then that will be a good day's work.
5: Okay, and they'll support those recommendations, which will mean that it'll be very high in aspiration. But will it be low on funding? Uh, Because it's one thing wishing to do these things. Paying for it is another thing. Uh, And you've said uh, that the report that will be published today will mean very little uh, unless uh, the money is found elsewhere, like taking money uh, already committed under Project Ireland 2040.
2: Well, no, you're right. I think, the first, as I said, I welcome that there's cross-party agreement now increasingly that we need to do something. But you're right. You follow the money. You know, what's mm-hmm. the actual change? And in to take that area of transport, which accounts for about twenty percent of our emissions and is rising. Um, I don't think we can just keep going with the current transport approach, where we have 51 national roads and motorway projects either being built or in planning, and we don't do a single public transport project in the same stage. If the government doesn't follow up by saying, oh, yes, we're all into climate now, we're going to take mm-hmm. action, but if it doesn't actually do anything to change the budget, well, then I think that would be... That, that wouldn't be real and, and yes there'll be a certain amount of kind of you know um, they would be saying oh well you can switch to an electric car which mm. is true and that'll be a hell of a lot better and, and a whole lot of benefits from it but on its own that's not going to be enough OK but it'll um, be a lot
5: better because we we'll would be paying more for diesel and petrol uh, and uh, from what I'm reading in the papers this morning they're talking about introducing a scrappage scheme so that people will be encouraged to get rid of their old diesel cars and go uh, electric and they'll introduce more chargers so it'll be easier to drive electric cars
2: yeah, but what I'd like to see is this moment of change. If we just swapped every car, every petrol or diesel car with an electric car, that would clean up the atmosphere and it would help in terms of local air pollution. But it wouldn't actually address one of the other problems with what's happening in the transport system—the gridlock that's evolving. Mm. And and I would much prefer if, rather than introducing a scrappage scheme, just mm. like the same old thing where we give you cash and and. Uh, To actually look at it, could we use it as a time to switch to a different form of car ownership? Let's set up a car sharing scheme. I mean, each car spends an average 95% of the time parked. Is that Um,
5: not the objective of uh, this congestion charge, similar to what uh, people have to pay for going into the centre of London, that there be similar schemes here?
2: We haven't seen the detail on what they're Mm. thinking about that. Um I think there has to be um, i mean there there are incentives for switching towards a car sharing where you know you might 't have to pay all the car tax yourself or the in in insurance like it is a lot of people are starting to move to it. You see those go cars around the place where people kind of you don 't own the car but you always have access to a car if you need one and I would like to see us using it this opportunity to kind of switch to, to that sort of model we have you know two million cars or so if we really got that system working and in place we could probably manage the country with the transport needs we need with a fraction of that and and advantage of that just bring it back to climate change it, it's such a radical shift we need to make i mean we're talking about, about about going net zero emissions no fossil fuel emissions by the middle of this century and in truth, then, you also have to look at the amount of products you're using, the kind of the, 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 the waste systems we have, and just this kind of consumer type culture where, you know, you buy a car every three years and then you move on, you get another one, and, and, and it's actually sitting 95% of the time. Yeah. We have to look towards a really efficient economy, and the advantage of that is. It actually is a better economy for everyone. We're we're not going to make this leap if it's just a punitive thing, if it's just kind of um, either a moral signal to people, oh, you have to do the right thing, or else all these different charges to get them to do the right thing. I think we have to do is is open up the possibility of a better way of doing things, a better uh, economic model, and make sure that that takes off. And Mm -hmm. that's going to take 10, 20 years But if that's a long-term vision we need, rather than just replicating the current system and just switching from one type of fuel to another.
5: I suppose if your vision or your aspiration is too low, you're not going to get any higher than that. Are are, are you pleased uh, by uh, what uh, you're hearing? The soundings coming from uh, the Minister, the aspiration does seem to be high. You talked about net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Uh, This seems to be the target that the Minister is setting now, uh, which is higher than what was uh, an 80% reduction.
2: Yeah, and that's again one of the questions. The government haven't been exactly clear about that. Again, reading the press reports today, they seem to be saying, oh, um, yes, we're interested in doing that, but we'll do another report. And and it was that St. Augustinian kind of phrase, oh, Lord, make me virtuous, but not quite yet. Um, uh, That's a radical target to go for. The British government have just done it last week. Um, The European Commission is asking every European country to do it. And it is the scale of the emergency we're in. We have to make that sort of shift away to net zero. Mm. Um, it changes everything to make that, to achieve it. People, what people don't realize is the scale of the change. It means that all those fertilizers and pesticides and we're using in the agricultural system at the moment, we have to switch to a different way. It means all the all those gas boilers. Like, you know, we have mm. a million houses with a, with an oil and gas-fired boiler. That would have to be switched in the coming decades and, and that would make sense to do anyway because the alternative heat pump systems are, are more efficient now and if you have a well-insulated house they really work well. But they all have to change.
5: But we're it going to is- outlaw these boilers, aren't we? I mean, this may be of concern uh, to people who, who work in these industries. Uh, but uh, all new buildings uh, will have to have newer forms of heating. Oil and gas boilers will be outlawed in them. Uh, and there seems to be a good chunk of, of this plan uh, that will focus on retrofitting houses so uh, that they can be more heat efficient.
2: Yeah, no, every single one house in the country, the plan will be to to have it properly insulated and uh, yes to have a heat pump rather than gas oil fired boiler but we make heat pumps too we make a lot of them up in the northeast of the country
0: Mm -hmm.
2: uh, and they really work when you've got a well-insulated house to go with it yes every single house having a solar panel on the roof yes every house having an electric charging point um so that you know if you do own a car you can or or if you have it overnight Mm -hmm. you you can plug it in and it's a massive project on the on private houses alone it's a 50 billion euro investment to be honest, Michael, we don't have the workers to do it yet. Mm. We're going to have to uh, train about twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 apprenticeships immediately in plumbing and in heat energy management systems. We have to set up the financing mechanisms so that houses can do it at such a low cost loan that actually the savings you make on your energy bill cover the cost of the work. Um, and that's before you start looking at our schools and public buildings and House, uh, so, social houses. Which and f- is 50 billion
5: before you get to that stage. That's an incredible figure. Where do we get That's 50 a, billion from and who's going to pay it?
2: On the private housing side, it will be probably largely private financed, and the banks and the European Investment Bank and everyone else mm. is lining up to, to, uh, to uh, do this. It'll take a couple of decades. But it is the right project to do because it has a real return. It it creates not just an efficient home where you have much lower fuel bills. It creates a much healthier home. So we'll have also the side benefits in terms of less medical and other expenses. So... It is the right project to do, it is that, but that is the scale of the change we're talking mm. about. This is going to change everything. It's going to change everything for the better, but it requires of political will over the next four, five, six governments to make it happen, and, and that's probably the key thing. We can't just do this all as a kind mm. of a put the blame on the citizen, put all the, the kind of um, are you doing the right thing. The job of government now is make to it, make it easier for people to do the right thing uh, this plan today is, 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 is a step in, this, in that direction. It'll be one of many steps, but it is a path I think we're, we're well set on now. Uh,
5: and uh, reports uh, this morning uh, that there may be government loans available for people to do this if they can't afford it, uh, and that you'd repay that money by paying more on property tax or higher electricity bills.
2: That new additional property tax is one I hadn't heard before, either from the government or, or anyone else. So, again, we will have to look at the, at the details in this. My um, sense in talking to the banks and to the European Investment Bank and others is the way you can bring the cost down is actually for the state to guarantee the first quarter of the loan. So that's some of the risk of it. And, and, and that brings down the cost mm-hmm. of the lending uh, to the bank. So there are... We're going to have to look at innovative financing ways of doing this. The other way we can bring the cost down, and I think probably the most important one, is actually when you're going into a street, most houses on a street are built in the same time in the same way. Most have the same characteristics. And rather than doing this job as a kind of one house at a time, which where every builder has to be contracted individually and you have to... Uh, work out all the arrangements one by one, far better to go in and do, let's say, 10 or 50 or 100 houses, similar houses at the one time. The benefit of that is, um, well, firstly, we can really kind of quality control it to make sure that it is the right equipment, that's the right standard. But secondly, the cost comes down. Um, For the builder, there's a big advantage that they know they have a body work. And for the householder, they know that actually by dividing the work with their neighbours, by getting it done at the one time, um, it could be significantly cheaper. So they're the sort of. I think it's not just going to be on the punitive side. We're mm-hmm. going to make this work. It has to be on the designing it in a way that's easy to get done is how we're going to have to make this really work.
5: All right. Uh, There's uh, obviously every aspect of life uh, that comes under this plan and how we live our our lives and what we're doing to our environment as we do so. So impossible to get through it all or anywhere near it. And the plan hasn't been published yet. When it is published today, what will you be watching for, Eamon Ryan?
2: I'd be looking to make sure that there is that commitment to net zero emissions. That's important. Secondly, the one you mentioned, I'd be looking to see, okay, show us the money. Show us, like, what's different? The current national development plan was only agreed last June. It had no climate assessment on it. Zero. They'd forgot about climate. And I think... Fine Gael have been reluctant so far to say that they will, will have to change the existing national development plan. They will, because it won't bring us to where we need to get to. So I'd be looking for some sort of admittance on that. And I think the third thing I'd be really looking for more than anything else, I think, is that the two sectors of transport and agriculture, there has to be acknowledgement that actually it has to change. It's not just replacing electric vehicles or Mm. petrol cars with electric vehicles. It should be a chance to change the transport system. And the same in agriculture. It's not just... Um, feeding calves seaweed in the hope that, you know, mm. the current system will work with slightly less emissions, I think it has to be a different agricultural system. And as much as anything else, a different agricultural system for Irish farmers because the current system I don't think is serving them well. And the way to uh, reduce the cattle herd? I think, yes, we're going to have to. Mm. And, uh, but hopefully then also get a better price for farmers mm. so that the cattle we do have uh, are, is traded on a green brand and gets a green premium. At the moment, we're trading on a green premium, but we're selling into international commodity markets. It makes no sense. So I'd I'd be looking for an acknowledgement of that, that, yeah, you know what, we are going to change our ways because the current way isn't working well.
5: Okay. well, thank you very much indeed for talking to us uh, this morning. Eamon Ryan is uh, the leader of the Green Party.
0: Michael, Michael Reed
5: on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, the Oireachtas uh, Committee on Education was uh, told last week uh, that it is scandalous uh, to place uh, children on reduced timetables in schools and that in fact what it is, is illegally suspending uh, these uh, children from school. Let's talk uh, about this and some other issues with uh, Thomas Byrne who made those comments. He's Fianna Falls education spokesperson and a TD for Mead East. And A very good morning to you and, uh, thanks for coming in to us uh, morning, this morning. Uh, t- tell us what these reduced timetables are. It's, it's a suspension but it's not a suspension is it?
4: Well I don't think they're considered by schools as a suspension but I think that the schools now have been informed very clearly by two that they are. Mm. So what's happening is in some cases it's usually the schools would say to do with um, health issues or possibly behavioural issues that were related to, to disability issues uh, where the school says maybe you're only going to do three hours a day or rings a parent to collect the child where there's no particular reason to collect the child other than possibly behaviour um, so this is becoming a a feature in the last while, I a number of colleagues I know Shane Castles and Frank mm-hmm. O'Rourke and Kildare, had come to me earlier this year and late last year about this issue and it, it turns out as well that the National Council for Special Education is seeing this as more of an issue, not just in Ireland, but around the world, in fact. Um, and the point I was making uh, at the Education Committee is that we're, we're pretty unique in this country that the right to primary education, at least, is guaranteed in the Constitution. Um, so you mess with that at your peril and you interfere yeah. with that at your peril. Um, and I always felt that any kind of informal reduction of the hours uh, that, that children were having at school uh, was certainly not lawful or, or constitutional. And it turns out that TUSTA agreed with me, the Department of Education... Yeah in in writing and on paper, agree completely as well. The National Council for Special Education saying they've seen no evidence that it was a benefit, despite a lot of teachers saying that this is a benefit. But the National Council have said, no, we haven't seen any evidence that it's a benefit. Um, and and I, I think and I think the committee will likely report and find that this has to stop. However, it has to stop. But it also we also have to make sure that the resources are there in place for children uh, who may need them, particularly those children with special needs.
5: And a, a child can be put on reduced hours for long periods of times, years. Well, uh, we, we had, certainly have had one case,
4: mm. um, and, and we've had one case where, where the, the it's going on two years. Mm. Um, and like that clearly, in my opinion, has to stop and stop very, very quickly. And what's happening is that the people who are complaining about this issue are the likes of the As I Am o- organisation, which is children, uh, mm. Adam Harris, uh, children affected by autism and their families are reporting this. Uh, the Traveller Society's Bernard mm. Joyce. Um, the traveller moving from Kells was, was uh, speaking at this as well uh, and indeed children from the poorer socio-economic backgrounds are the ones who are most affected by this um, so it has to stop but concomitant with that is that the state has to put the resources in because mm. what i'm saying there's a right to con- a constitutional right to education mm. there is for every child that so they can't be put home and um, you know just on a willy-nilly or without the proper procedures but at the same time the state needs to make sure that the resources are there to ensure that children are able to be in school uh, for the entire of the day and the teachers are able to cope uh, with the if there are mm. difficulties with particular children that they have uh, help and support but you know i've been I certainly have got a lot of kickback from some teachers uh, on on Twitter and t- it's the resources issue they're talking about and I certainly understand that, but I think that they need to understand as well that the 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 right to primary education is absolutely fundamental to our society and, and secondary education as well yeah. um, and and but
5: are are you denying children the right to their education if another child is disrupting the classroom because there's always been disruptive behaviour and there always will be and the schools have always had uh, a, a right to use sanctions. Yeah they uh, have, and, no, absolutely it's the right to use sanctions. No, and absolutely. they will suspend children yes. as we know and on occasion they will expel children. Yes
4: absolutely mm. and that mm. can happen and there's legislative pr- there's procedures for that and mm. that's set down. Is but, this
5: an effort by the schools not to suspend children?
4: Uh, well certainly some teachers are saying that to me. Um, some teachers quietly, not publicly, mm. some teachers will say to me, "This is this is a way to keep suspensions mm. off the books." This so, is the in best, worst cases, option. In some cases, now in other cases, mm. it is because the the teachers genuinely believe uh, that the children will be better off at home. Mm. Now that is acceptable, if. It's backed up by psychologists' reports or, or doctors' reports or mm-hmm. whatever. This is the best approach. However, uh, it's not always possible mm-hmm. for teachers to have access to psycho- educational mm-hmm. psychologists or doctors. So That's obviously a key issue that has to be addressed as part of this whole issue.
5: But, but is there a risk of, of forcing the school's hand, forcing them to expel these children, to send them home permanently rather than them have reduced hours in the classroom? Well,
4: well you see, the, the problem we have at the moment is that the if you look at the number of children with special needs in the country, um, and children with special needs are one, one group of people that are affected by this okay so there's about maybe three to five percent of children in schools with special needs but when you look at the number of uh, official expulsions and official mm. suspensions you're up in a third of expu- expulsions or suspensions or, or refusal to admit children uh, are actually from uh, are, are concerned children with special needs mm. uh, and that's that's a real issue so the why issue is that happening though because
5: for a child with special needs depending on uh, the degree of Uh, the um, problem that there is, uh, to go to mainstream schools needs a special needs assistant. Uh, Are
4: are the assistants not there? The assistants are there. In some cases, in particular, children find them hard to get. But quite frankly, I don't know the reason why uh, children with special needs are disproportionately affected by this. I've had a number of them uh, that I've dealt with in my constituency office, and it's absolutely outrageous what's Mm. going on in some cases. But I have to say, Michael, I mean, you're obviously asking me the questions here about this today. I found it very difficult to highlight that in the media and I'm glad that sometimes you have to say things mm. very dramatically like I did and I meant every word that I said at the committee on mm. Thursday uh, to, to highlight this and to try first of all to put a stop to, but, but primarily actually to make sure that the resources are there so that schools can feel comfortable dealing with all these children but the point about official suspensions and expulsions is uh, that there are procedures there that schools have to comply with they have to mm. be reported uh, you have a right of appeal in relation to that none of that happens with these uh, unofficial uh, reduction of hours. so I think that parents... Uh, in some ways, need to have the strength, if they feel that they this is not right or not fair, they have to have, have the strength to say no to the school, ask for it in writing uh, from the school, because very often the schools won't give it in writing. But at the same time, I'm going to fight very, very hard to make sure the schools get the resources that they need, whether it's special needs assistance. But, but I, I, there's a lot mm. of special needs assistance out there at the moment. Really, I think the, the bigger focus should now be on the, uh, the special classes, uh, special schools, uh, and, and and making sure that children are able to, to, to get to the right uh, school, because there's another cohort of kids out there and I've met them, I think it might have been on your show about it before who don't have a school place at all uh, because of their particular needs. Uh, so that's something that will have to be addressed.
5: Alright, uh, let's talk about sex education in the couple of minutes that we have left. If we can please, uh, talks are to take place between department officials and uh, representatives of uh, the Catholic schools. Uh, there is some concern about how sex education is being taught in Catholic schools. It, Is it right for any
4: faith-based sex education? Um, The the truth is that sex education in some Catholic schools has done really, really well. And that sex education in some non-Catholic schools is done really, really badly. So it's not possible to generalise, actually, as to whether sex education has been done uh, the right way in Catholic Mm. schools or the wrong way. There's some really good examples and some really bad examples in all sectors of the education system. Uh, What we would say is that the state provides a curriculum in relation to sex education, has done so for quite a number of years. That curriculum now needs to be updated, although I have to say a lot of it is pretty good, Mm. but some of it has to be updated It's 20 years old. Uh, in relation to changes in society and that curriculum I think it's important uh, that it is taught in a consistent manner uh, across uh, the entire education system I think the state is entitled to expect that um, and, and, and that's all that the Oireachtas Education Committee is looking for now we have from the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment is, is studying this at the moment and is about to come out with recommendations of what will be on the, the sex education curriculum, it will change from what's already there but I don't think usually dramatically to be honest with you, there, will, there will be some changes, the, the issue really is to make sure that and, and teachers will say this, that some of them don't have yeah. the confidence to teach it um, and I think that will change newer generation of teachers etc, the whole country is not as co- you know, as not as um, Stuck on these issues as maybe we used to be twenty, thirty, forty years ago. Um, so that will change, and this doesn't affect in any way the ethos of the school or the ability to, for the school to teach religion. The bishops
5: values. have saying have said that you know uh, Catholic values should be part of sex education. Catholic values, what's seem, from the recent uh, document from uh, the Vatican, is uh, to tell some children that they're uh, distorting nature.
4: Well th- that that can't be taught in Irish schools um mm. in Irish state schools that's that's the reality I mean Irish state schools are funded uh, by the state, and I think the state is entitled to have its curriculum taught in those schools, and that's, that's, that's the law. It needs to be absolutely made clear in the law because it's slightly vague, um, but but that, w- that will have to happen, and we certainly will be absolutely clear about that. I think mm. The Euronics Committee has But we, we, clear we about don't
5: it. have conversations like this about geography
4: or no, something else. That's the, some, that's the point I made. Something I else on the curriculum. That, there's there's yeah. no mm-hmm. issue with mm-hmm. any other mm-hmm. subject except mm-hmm. sex education, so there shouldn't be an issue. Mm. Um, and it, it has to be taught. And and that and that's it. And it, in, in my opinion, it is of no um, consequence to the ethos of the schools because, as I said, there are lots of Catholic schools out there who are doing more than what the state mm. requires, uh, without a- any impinging whatsoever uh, on the Catholic ethos of the schools, but also making sure that the children get the full education that they're entitled to. All right,
5: we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, today, Fáil's spokesperson on education, Thomas Byrne, TD for Meath East.
0: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
5: LMFM. Now, let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie.
0: Good morning,
7: Michael, and good morning to all our listeners. Margaret phoned in in relation to this uh, possible strike on Thursday by the hospital support staff. She says she's not. Uh, she works as a support service worker in the Northeast. She's not a SIPDU member. But she says she will not be passing the picket if it goes ahead. So she thinks that the number being given would probably be a lot more in terms of people who won't be working on that day. She says she knows a lot of her colleagues won't be passing it either. We don't want to strike. But uh, it's felt that it is necessary. And if I'm reprimanded for passing the picket, I will take it on the chin.
5: If we're not passing. Okay. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's
7: it. Uh, another listener says, Michael Sinead uh, got in touch. Will appointments be affected on Thursday? There has been very little mm. information as to what will be affected.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly the point uh, that uh, I was making with uh, Bernard Dirk and Uh, TD uh, when he spoke to us about this a little bit earlier on because there's no doubt uh, the work of uh, the hospitals in the country will be severely disrupted if not brought to a standstill Uh, and uh, there is no contingency plan uh, in place, no backup plan Mm -hmm. in place it would seem for 10,000 people not working in the 38 hospitals this Thursday Uh, and it seems inevitable that procedures are are going to be postponed and appointments will be cancelled and all that sort of thing but uh, at this stage uh, there's no statement from the HSE in relation to these issues.
7: John says Michael can they not just try and agree by talks on this. Now they are talking, mm. but as you say, but uh, what, the point that he's making is that we had it with the nurses' mm. strike. It wasn't until they went out striking mm. and there was terrible disruption, and then you know they they came to some agreement. And can this not happen now before there are, mm. there is this strike on Thursday, and then the possibility of further strikes as yeah. well?
5: Mm. Well, I, I I don't know. Uh, I mean. I think uh, the trade union uh, is in a particularly strong position in relation to this uh, because they have an agreement. They -hmm. have an agreement with the HSE and they have an agreement with the Department of Health and they've been told they're going to get their pay rises. They were Mm -hmm. told that they'd get them last August and it's an issue that dates back to 2016. Uh, But Mm -hmm. they were told that they'd get them last Mm -hmm. August and the Department of Public Expenditure has said, we're not going to give the money to bring the pay up in line with the agreement.
7: Sharon says that the hospital support workers are so valuable to the operations in any hospital and that they should be treated fairly. Mm, So that's just some on that topic. Mm. Moving then to climate change. Martin, is the government not a bit late to the party when it comes to tackling climate change? I suppose, though, better later than never. But I hope they don't expect the ordinary Joe and Mary soap to pay for it all. Well,
5: of course they do. Who else is going to <laughs> exactly. pay for it? It's going <laughs> yeah. to be the
7: taxpayer. Yeah. Uh, Joe says, would you ask that politician, Eamon Ryan, when mm. they are going to stop at planes flying in the sky, the biggest polluters in the world, we might take climate change seriously then.
5: OK, well. Don't I think sp-
7: they're ever going to stop that, Michael.
5: I don't think so. <laughs> and I suppose it, it's trying to get the balance between all of these things. You know, we all want to travel around the world as often as possible and all of that sort of thing. But uh, he's right at the same time. There's an awful lot of pollution from aviation.
7: Declan says if the government wants to see more electric cars on the road, then they'd have to put in far more electric charging points around the country.
2: Hey, it's Danny
5: Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part, they're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com
2: slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
8: to get started visit plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss country
5: for
7: it to be feasible of because course. you can only mm. go
5: so far in yeah. them yeah it's at the very early stages and uh, I'm not Sure, too many people would be too quick to buy an electric car. They did a a lot of long distance driving. Yeah, I
7: did drive one, you know. Okay. Yeah, I was out in one a couple of years ago. I I was doing it for Mm. for the job, reporting on it. So it was interesting. Mm. But the charging again, Mm. you could only go so far. I think I went to Kildare and then I had to charge it again (laughs) to come back to Dublin Mm. again. So, you know, Mm. so I can see the point being made by Declan. Mm. Tommy from Drogheda, listening to Eamon Ryan. Uh, Tommy says he's involved in the meat industry, talking about cutting cattle. But you're, it's ordinary humans that cause most of the pollution in this world with our packaging. I do agree with a lot of the points he makes. But what are you going to do about ordinary people? The biggest polluters.
5: Mm, well, <laughs> yeah, uh, and I suppose it's not one single thing. Uh, I mean, he's right, of course. Uh, people uh, cause an awful lot of pollution. Uh, there is a lot of carbon uh, emitted uh, every time a, a cow belches, uh, mm. and uh, that's why there is so much focus. Uh, it's the flatulation from the cattle herd uh, that is causing the problems.
7: Jack from Loud. So, are we going to do, go? Do, are we going to do away with oil, gas, coal for heating and cooking? We live in a cold, wet country. What are we to heat or cook with? Or are we simply to move to a warmer climate or die? Has Eamon got the answer to that? Hmm. Says well,
5: I think he has. I think we heard it. I mean, there's uh, alternative fuels now available and solar heating and insulation, meaning that you'll need less uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, I think the move is to move away from oil and gas. Yes.
7: Moving then to your interview uh, just now with Thomas Byrne, mm. the Fianna Fáil education spokesperson. If pupils are out, put out of a class because they are misbehaving, it's usually for a very good reason, says this listener. You have to consider that a teacher could have up to 30 students in a class. And unless he or she has control of the class, it's going to be a disaster. Okay. Kathleen phoned in on the same topic. And her point is that if a student is constantly disruptive in a class, it affects the other students. Mm-hmm. Do they not deserve to their right to education? Should they not have mm-hmm. that without constant interruption? what about their rights? She says she's speaking from experience Mm. that my daughter was in class with a number of students who just did not want to learn Mm. and constantly made the teacher's life a nightmare. Uh, the, the time of the teacher was taken up mostly with trying to deal with mm. these students. So should they just be left there to cause that disruption?
5: Well, I, I, I don't think so. I mean I don't think anybody said that this morning. Uh, we did uh, talk about that to some degree with uh, Thomas Byrne. He was saying that uh, on one hand the schools c- should continue to have the right to expel students or suspend yes. them as the case may be but uh, instead of uh, these reduced hours where they're allowed to come in for three hours or not allowed to come in for three hours mm. uh, depending on uh, what is being imposed on the child, that the schools should be given better support, uh, that there should be more resource put in to help them to deal with this type of behaviour so that the other children aren't affected by it.
7: Patricia on sex education says that she left school in the early 80s with very little sex education and she thinks it should be absolutely compulsive in schools, that both boys and girls are taught Properly and are given full information mm. in relation to uh, sex and the whole reproductive system yeah. and how it all works.
5: Okay, whether they're a Catholic, a Hindu, a Buddhist or a whatever. Jew. Whatever. Yeah. It right. shouldn't
7: make any difference. Okay,
5: thanks uh, for that. Uh, we're going to go back uh, some 17 days in time. I'm not sure if uh, anybody remembers at this stage because it's so long ago. Uh, in fact, uh, we haven't had uh, one of our Finnegal TDs and me, Don, in that time period either because uh, it was on the 31st of May that we last spoke to one of the TDs in Meath and that was Damien English junior minister and we were speaking to him about a, a number of issues uh, but there had been some criticism of Fine Gael for not entering into public debates with the North-East Pile and Pressure Campaign about the North-South Interconnector. And we asked Damien English about this on the 31st of May. And we'll just remind ourselves of what the Minister had to say now.
1: Michael, I've said to you numerous occasions, and I've been involved in, and I've debated many, many times uh, on your programme, which, which the, the various things in yeah. that as well, and... I've, I've no problem doing that when it's appropriate. So will well, well, is
5: it appropriate? Will you, will, will you agree to do that with Poroch O'Reilly or that Regina Doherty will do it with Poroch O'Reilly I'm, or I'm, that I'm, Helen McEntee I'm, will do it with Poroch O'Reilly? I'm, I'm, because I'm, we were in a situation going into an election where the group were raising it as a, an election issue. One that they say you and the other ministers in this region are uh, responsible for creating and nobody was available to debate it. A, a, a really incredible situation, minister, uh, to I'm the right. minds of most people.
1: Okay, well, Michael, just to, just to be clear, in relation to how your program works, you were running a local election. There was a lo- it, in my view, uh, this it was not a local le- election issue. I got a call once to ask to go on a program. I probably quite short notice, to be honest, with you. I, and you know, I try to respond when I can. I couldn't on that day. Okay. I, I have a many. Sorry, Michael. Just to be clear here now, I have many. On many other cases come on to debate programme. I will do that again in the future, and once you chair it independently, which of course you all will yep, do Okay,
5: so will we'll, we'll one of the ministers uh, come on the programme over I'm the course sure. of the next week or two to discuss this with Paul I, 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 I,
1: I, I, I have no problem coming on at, at Great. Time we can arrange, okay. once we have a proper independent discussion on this, and again to be clear, uh, please I we'll look to forward today. to
5: that, Minister, thank you very
1: much yeah, This is going on a long, long number of years to many, many different governments as well and I think you'll recognise I've been on many times and I've never said no to come on when I can do it at proper time. On no, the, the brink point.
5: of an election, though, Minister, it was an important time for somebody to, out of but the I three local Michael, ministers to come forward and it didn't happen.
1: I think, Michael, to be fair, if you might check your records, you might just see how much notice I was asked to come on the debate. Right, just check that, please, because, you know, I do have, and you know, I know you understand this, I mean, I do have sometimes my diaries booked up quite a no. lot. I think I was asked either the evening before or that morning to come on and I, and I couldn't commit to that. And, you know, I've always offered to come on any chance I can. Again, similar to today, I was asked to come on yesterday. I couldn't come on yesterday. So you facilitated me to come on today. That wasn't the offer the last time. so. I am always available for debate on any issue I can okay. once they're fair and I debates, debate and I think you know that to be fair to you.
5: Okay, well we've uh, checked our, our records uh, since then and uh, we've a different understanding uh, in terms of uh, the invitation uh, that uh, was uh, put to Minister English at the time to come and uh, discuss the North-South interconnector. It was an invitation that was also extended uh, to Regina Doherty and to, to Helen McIntyre, and this was on uh, foot of a public meeting that the North East pile and Pressure Campaign Group were holding uh, in advance of the local elections. The minister, very reasonably there, said, uh, well, look, you know, you can't expect me to be available at the drop of a hat, uh, and uh, I'm always available to come on your show. We asked, uh, would one of the ministers be available to come on sometime over the next week or two? Now, that was over two weeks ago. That was two and a half weeks ago on the 31st of May. And none of the Fine TDs, so that's Damien English, who we heard from there, Helen McEntee or Regina Doherty, Doherty have been available to us since. Uh, perhaps that will change in the coming days.
7: Hopefully, Michael, we'll keep on it. Mm. Uh, to go back to some of the comments then, uh, we were discussing last week... Uh, the situation regarding Kevin Callan's extra seat and Declan Power is going to be proposed for that seat and uh, the reason why he didn't offer it to Frank Godfrey was because he didn't Want to offer to somebody who had lost a seat right, and yeah. we had a comment in from Mary who says, Frank Godfrey may have lost his seat but Declan did not win a seat of at any time. If we wanted a Fianna Fáil person in, we would have voted Declan in in the first place. He says he will be independent for this term but then he will probably get his experience and probably go back to Fianna Fáil,
5: Maybe so, Mary. maybe not, I don't know. Mm -hmm.
7: In relation to road deaths, we were also discussing that. Uh, Tony from County Loud says, Michael, it is rarely mentioned by those taking credit for the reduction in road debt figures, but the biggest contributor to that reduced figure is indeed the introduction of the motorway as opposed to what was only a slightly improved old coach road, such as the main road from Dublin Mm -hmm. to Belfast which claimed many lives every year says Tony.
5: Absolutely, motorways are are statistically uh, the safest roads that you can drive on uh, and uh, I think uh, better roads and better cars uh, have led uh, to better road safety.
7: So we'll finish on that one.
5: OK, thanks for that. And thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Marie and Maggie are taking calls today as usual. Our telephone number is eighteen fifty-seven one five nine five eight.
0: Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM.
5: Now yeah, we're going to talk about uh, the cut to home help hours. Uh, God knows there's been a, a lot of talk uh, and indeed it has taken up a, a lot of time because there's a, a lot of concern uh, about how home help hours may not be available in the future. In fact, how people may have to pay for home help if uh, they are in need of uh, the service. It's an issue that was raised time and again last week in the doll. we We'll hear one contribution now from a, a local TD, and uh, the response from uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Radger. Here's Peter Fitzpatrick speaking in the dog.
0: 17 billion euros, the highest health investment in the, in the history of the state, the government has stated. The HSE welcomed the increase saying it will, it will greatly assist dealing with, year to year, rising demands on the healthcare system. Yet we are not looking after our most vulnerable people in society, the elderly and, and disabled. The HSE, the HSE has suspended home health uh, despite more than 6,000 people waiting to assess home health support. The elderly and disabled want to stay at home, want to be close to their friends and family. Uh, Taoiseach, this, to me, this is bad management by the government and also the HSE. This is taxpayers' money. It makes sense to let uh, citizens stay at home and be cared for. Uh, home care does work. So Taoiseach, who is accountable? Who is responsible? If this was a private company, heads would roll. Taoiseach?
1: Answer to answer Deputy Fitzpatrick's question, the, um, the HSE is responsible and the HSE is accountable for these matters uh, under the Health Acts.
5: There you go. That's uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Radker, responding uh, to independent TD and now the Peter Fitzpatrick, who's come into us uh, this morning. Were you surprised by that response? Uh, the HSE is to blame, if you like.
0: Well, Mike, I, I asked him two questions. The first question I asked him was, who was responsible? Mm. And I asked him, what, what what accountability? And in fairness, the answer he gave me actually really, really, really dropped me. Uh, it, as I said in, in, in that interview, I said that uh, if this was a private uh, company, heads roll, mm. uh role the, the, the HSE are spending $17,000 per year on the HSE. And the HSE has also stated that they were very happy with the allocation of $17 million. I have people come to my consistency offices day in, day out, these are elderly people. These are people who's living longer. And these are people who've paid taxes and everything else. This government has given commitment that they will look after them. Like, I heard Jim Daly, the minister of responsibility mm. for the elderly people, speaking in, in Northern Ireland there during the week. And, and I couldn't believe what actually he said as well. He told me and said, oh, it's slightly better than it was last year. Like, 6,300 people on the waiting list. These are people that, who want to go home, live with their loved ones. Mm. These, these are people that's actually causing the government an absolute fortune by staying mm. in hospital. Like, 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 any man or woman in the street would know is that it's far cheaper to get people living at home. Like, like, if you look at, in this country, we've over 200,000 carers who's pos- who's getting roughly about 230 or 240 euros a week for looking after, yeah. looking after the loved ones. Michael, they're doing that because they love the people. Like, these people... Like these people want to come home. As and and part, part
5: of the problem, there's many people who are in hospital who have been discharged. They're clinically discharged. In other words, they're fit to go home, provided the supports are in place, which sometimes would include this type of home help, uh, but would also involve housing adaptations, putting in a, a stair lift or something like that. Uh, and until that happens, they have to stay in hospital at, a, at the cost of about a, a thousand euro a night. And they stay in hospital sometimes for up to six months or even longer.
0: It makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, I was in the little hospital there about three or four weeks ago with my daughter. And I, I I was looking there. And like, it, it, like I'm saying to myself, a lot of people shouldn't even be here. Mm. Like I remember I became a, a TD in, in, in 2011. And I remember getting James Riley, the minister, down to the dog at the time. And I was on with the minister because there was a lot of pressure on me mm. in the dog to, to keep the Low County Hospital open. Not, not, not about losing the services back in 2010, but keeping keeping the hospital open. And if you look at the Lloyd County Hospital, there at the moment is they've opened up three wards there at the moment is they've got over ninety beds. They're looking after palliative care. They're looking mm. after strokes and everything else. And if you look at the two, it's also a step down for the Lewis Hospital. Mm. There could be I don't know many people in the Lloyd Hospital. There could be 50, 60 people there at the moment is, and them people there are step. A lot of them people mm. are probably waiting to go home too. To. But Andrew says we have to look after our loved ones. But I said it. I basically believe that the HSE is is very very disorganised in this end.
5: Do you believe, though, that the HSE is responsible, responsible and accountable, as the T shock told you?
0: Well, uh, first of all, it is uh, uh, the, the the person who's responsible for it, to me is is Simon Howes, who's the minister. And in fairness to me, they get, like. He should he, he should have his fingers in the pulse now. He should have the right people in the right places. Like I, I always said, yeah. it the HSE should be run like a business. Like if, if someone handed you seventeen thousand mm. million to run an organisation, uh, one of the high, probably the, the highest level, uh, Ireland's one of the leading ones in the world for head per population the money being spent. There's something drastically wrong. And I tell you one mm. thing. Uh, last week in my constituency office, uh, a couple of HSC work- workers came to me and. Uh, they're very, very disappointed with the, with the contract that they have in HSE. HSE. Uh, what they're doing is they're being contracted there for 35 or 40 hours, but they seem to be spending most of the time sitting around the house, yeah. waiting for the HSE to These contract. are home help workers. These are, are home health yeah. workers that's employed by the mm-hmm. HSE what they're trying to say at the moment is they have to wait for the HSE to ring them yeah. and tell them to go A, B and C and they're still getting paid and then when you look at the amount of agency staff that's working in the HSE like like to me it's it's, 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 it's So when the Taoiseach
5: says we've increased the budget by 50% but I don't think we've increased the service by 50% that's part of the problem no doubt that people are being paid to sit at home and yeah. not provide the service
0: Oh that's, that's what's happening there at the moment especially I, I, as I said in my constituency mm. office in the dock last week a couple of the HSE workers come in and, and they what the walk? Mm, this is morale mm, is mm. very, very low. No. Like when they go to people's houses, like a, a family member can only do so much. Mm. You do need someone like like it it can be embarrassing for uh, your mother or your father that's in health, like having having no children that maybe debate them him and bat them and maybe I remember years ago, Michael, and uh, when my mother wasn't well. Like, like we about we doing the right thing, and my mother be in the bed, and you would be trying to, you know, get her in for a bath. Mm. We be doing my mother more damage than that. And as like, like she be frail and mm-hmm. uh, on her skin and everything else, and they, they, like, there's something seriously, seriously wrong at the moment. Is and I think, like, the, mm. to me, the, the answer that Tisha gave me last week was an absolute disgrace. I think, I think, I think that it's about time he woke up. Like, like we. Well, why?
5: What should he have said?
0: Well, I think, I think my what, what he should have said to me was that. Uh, We've, we failed. We, we, like mm. if he said to me, like, but uh, it's the
5: government who is responsible.
0: Yeah, let's let's call it a spade a spade. Is. Uh, Jim Daly says that the figures are a wee bit lower than last year. Mm. But 6,300 people waiting to be discharged, waiting for home help. to me that's wrong. Mm. And you're not talking about big, massive money, right? You, you might be looking for stair lifts and staircases and, mm-hmm. and this, but most of these people just want maybe the door size to be moved or yep. maybe a bed or something like that. It's, it's not going to cost mm. massive money. And when you go up to these hospitals, and you visit these hospitals and you see these elderly people sitting in trolleys for one mm. day, two days, or three days, to me that is totally and utterly totally wrong. To me, if the government sat and like like like, I have a funny feeling. Like the, the bottom line here at the moment is, I think the government is panicking because they don't know how much this children's hospitals going to cost. At the moment, we hear 1.4 billion, we hear 1.7 billion. This is going to be it's going to be over two two billion. And the government's saying himself, where's the money going to come from? And the, the bottom line is, the money's going to come from uh, cutting back and, and services like the, like the elderly.
5: Mm. And I suppose uh, sometimes uh, the carer is elderly, that you'd have a a younger person uh, with a a disability and uh, the older carer doesn't have the strength or energy to be lifting them into baths or whatever the case may be and that sort of thing. And uh, I think anybody who needs to be in hospital is happy to be in hospital because uh, it feels like the right place to be when you're that sick that you need hospital care you don't question that in your own mind but when you don't need to be in hospital and you're in hospital and they've actually discharged you from hospital it's the most boring place in the world it has a a detrimental uh, impact on your confidence and your mental health and all that sort of stuff but there's also the cost of it I mean the cost of keeping somebody in hospital compared to providing home help uh, they're worlds apart it makes no sense
0: Uh I'm a TD for the last nine years, and I don't know many times I've been said in your programme, your health is your wealth of life. The the, the 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 services that you get from the HSC in hospital is absolutely fantastic. You know, and, and the bottom line is, if a doctor, a consultant, or whoever has come along and said, listen, uh, you 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 can go home and 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 these people want to go home and all of a sudden disease these stumbling blocks. I was just reading a report there in the Irish Times by Paul Cullen recently that he was saying that it's up as far as maybe it could be three and a half to four months. It could be up as far as maybe two years. Like, to me, that's an absolute disgrace. And if you look at it, I think the amount of people that die in the hospital per day, mm. I think I heard in your program there last week, there's an average of seven people per day that's dying in our hospitals there. Like, like, people going in the hospitals and they're old and afraid and they get the medication and all of a sudden mm. they want to go home. Like, I know myself... Being in your own surroundings, with your own family and friends, there's a fantastic, fantastic good feeling of that there. And sometimes a good feeling would actually be probably maybe the best medicine. But I just can't understand what it takes at the tax agenda moment is. Like, and I keep saying it again. Please tell me, like seventeen thousand million being spent in the health services, and uh, honestly, it's an absolute joke. Like as I said, yeah, we've got some of the best business people in this country here, like maybe like some Michael O'Leary, who runs a fantastic. And I- is that but
5: seventeen billion enough to cover this? Uh, I mean, we've heard uh, the minister talk about introducing a, a fair deal type of scheme for home help, where you'll pay for it or pay for it eventually. Is that the way forward, or have we got the money? already available to us under that £17 billion.
0: Well, as I said to you there, I had, I had two HSE uh, workers coming to see me there last mm. week in my office and they were telling me that it's so dysfunctional they're sitting at home in the house getting paid. Mm. Like, that's only two people coming to me there last week. It's, so it's a question it, it, of
5: managing it, what we have.
0: As I said to you, if this was a private business, mm. head the road. Like... There's the a mass amount of money being spent on our health system. And I maintain, as James Riley always said years ago, is uh, the money should follow the patients there at the moment. The amount of money that this government and the HIC are wasting, like, there's, there's no accountability here. I asked the teacher a simple question who's responsible and what accountability at the moment? Is? I have never heard of anyone in the HIC getting sacked. Uh, everything going to the HIC, like, and in fairness, uh, the, the frontline staff are doing a fantastic job. When you can into the system, whether it's x-rays or whether you want to stroke units or... Dive, mm-hmm. like the, the services are fantastic but there's an awful lot of money being wasted and I, I, I guarantee wanting if we got someone in there to do an audit and the amount of waste that's been done in the HSE, I'll tell you one thing uh, the heads will definitely roll and I said to you, for the teacher to come out and just say to me, listen to the HSE is responsible for that there at the moment. Is, like, like, um, we have to do something and do something soon. In fairness, people are living a lot of old People mm-hmm. are living... I, I, I believe... The, 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 the old 60, nice new 80 the amount of people living longer they, they, there's a medicine out there looking after but people want to have a quality of life and there's an awful lot of people in the hospital then 6,300 people want to go home want to have a quality of life and spend the rest of the time with the family
5: Alright, we'll leave it there, thank you for coming in to us uh, this morning, Independent TD in Louth Peter Fitzpatrick
0: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM.
5: Now, Mary Lou Macdonald is weak according to some rebellious Sinn Féin TDs. Uh, this is according to the front page of uh, the Irish Examiner, Daniel McConnell, reporting on uh, some of uh, the concerns uh, that party members have, and writes extensively over a couple of pages inside the paper today. He's with us on the phone now. And a uh, very good morning to you, Daniel, and uh, thanks for joining us here on the programme. Uh, your saying that there's questions mounting as to whether Mary Lou Macdonald is the right person to lead them into the promised land of government uh, as you put it.
3: Yeah, so I suppose what we wanted to do with this report was to kind of delve in um, a little deeper as to just what caused the the, the precise reversal of Sinn Féin's uh, electoral performance. Uh, And, you know, in the immediate aftermath, a lot of people were pointing to low turnout as being one of the main causes Uh, particularly in the kind of more working-class areas of Dublin and other urban areas. Um, But it seems to be, seems actually a more uh, forensic examination shows Well, actually, no, the turnout was pretty steady compared to 2014. It's just simply, and more worrying for Sinn Féin, is that that support just drifted to other parties like the Stockton, the Green Party, Labour. And, and to Fianna Fáil, to a certain degree mm. and, and what there's an awful lot of uh, well it seems to like there's an awful lot of recrimination going on within the party but what we're getting for the first time ever this never really happened under Jerry Adams' watch mm. is open sort of criticism of the leader we are getting you know that she's you know a bit weak uh, in terms of how she's running the parliamentary party there are a number of TDs who their colleagues are saying are underperforming that there's kind of almost a, an over concentration of those who with, you know who are having to go out and do all the media work or perform in the doll and all the rest is too small a number uh, basically doing that and ultimately there's a feeling among some of her colleagues that you know Mary Lou rather than trying to be the strong leader is trying to be everybody's friend and you know you know it kind of goes to the heart of you know the jump from being number 2 to number 1 has proven very difficult for.
5: And that uh, analysis of uh, the turnout was carried out by Sinn Féin itself. Was it uh, in certain areas they looked to, to see how turnout was and uh, it turned out uh, to be as high as would have been the case five years ago?
3: That's it. It's, it's, so what we were reflecting is very much what, what the sort of mood is like within the party. So, you know, you had someone there. More organised people, basically saying, you know, we've looked at the numbers, we've we've kind of, called, you know, uh, we've examined sort of the trends and where the, the the votes went and mm. why we did much worse than we thought we were going to do, um, and yeah, like so, what they they're concluding uh, in particular in some very key areas would have would have expected to do quite well. Um, is you know that the the vote just simply drifted away, and you kind of go like so. The party did extremely well in 2014. It got a huge bounce of over 100 seats at, at local level, and obviously mm. picked up the three MEP seats uh, with Lim Boyle in particular topping the poll in Dublin, mm. uh, coming from nowhere. Um, and ultimately, both this sort of lost both Liany Reid and Lynn Boylan as MEPs and have lost, you know, 78 council seats. That's a, that's a significant reversal. Uh, and, you know, what they're basically saying is that we didn't see that coming. You know, the big, the, like, the big scary thing for a lot of them is that <clears throat> they weren't getting any real sense of this sort of backlash on the doors coming in. They, they had gone in with the hope of maybe holding all their seats and maybe even expanding a little bit. But... That clearly didn't happen and now what, you're, what you now have is a lot of people looking towards Mary Lou McDonald and, and to you know some of their other major party leaders mm. saying, lads, what went on here? What went wrong? Um, and clearly there is a sense that the party has a bit of an identity crisis. You know, it, is it rushing too fast into the middle ground and forgetting where, where it's traditionally come from in its base? Um, or is it just a case that the generation that stayed so united under Gerry Adams have have just basically looked at Mary Lou and are not convinced by what she's saying?
5: And it really is a reversal of fortunes isn't it in that uh, the 78 seats uh, they lost were from 159 council seats that they took in 2014 and you remind us in the Irish Examiner today that that was an increase of 105 seats.
3: Yeah absolutely so they did extremely well they they kind of capped Captured through the wave of anger around the whole water charges issue in 2014. They were the main beneficiaries of it, as well as some of the people on the hard left. But Sinn Féin were essentially they became the party of anger, the party of protest, and that was maybe fitting in 2014 when the country mm. was really quite divided about what way it should happen. We were coming to the end, the end of austerity um, and, and ultimately what we had was this this whole uh, a swathe of anger, which just simply kind of crystallised. You know, so F- Fine Gael had lost a huge number of seats that day, as did the Labour Party, and a huge number of them went to Sinn Féin. But when you look across the country this time round, a huge number of those seats gained in 2014 have just disappeared and have kind of spread out all over the place.
5: Uh, and how much of this do you think has to do with Mary Lou MacDonald not being Gerry Adams? Because Gerry Adams is one of uh, the most identifiable politicians on the planet.
3: Without question, there's no doubt about it, but, I mean, there was no great surprise that Mary Lou Macdonald was going to be his successor. There was no doubt about it that she was going to, you know, be the next leader, particularly in the South, whatever, Michelle O'Neill in the North. Mm. And and they knew that Gerry Adams was not going to be around forever. I mean, he was, he was in situ for 34 years, so, you know, they could have, without question, they knew that this was going to happen. They had. There's always a, a question of how you manage a transition, but the clear evidence from what we've seen and the clear admissions from a lot of the people within Sinn Féin is that they haven't managed the transition well at all. It hasn't gone to plan. Uh, And ultimately what you're now seeing is rather than them kind of rushing headlong into the middle ground and kind of eating Fianna Fáil up, Mm. what you're now seeing is them growing too fast, too quickly, and they're losing a lot of ground on on their left flank. So you're kind of saying, as I said, this is where this question mark of an identity crisis has come in. A lot of people are saying, well, what, what should we be? Are we ready to go into government? Are we, you know, kind mm. of you know, throwing away all our old clothes um, just for that goal of getting into government? And what happens when we do get into government? What sort of party will we be then? So it's very interesting to see mm-hmm. this happen, Mike, because for so long, since they started their march in ninety-seven, when Cuisine O'Quaylon came into the Dáil uh, as a lonely TD, as an only TD then at that stage, mm. Sinn Féin has been very much on the march. And this... Time is, you know, between if you take the presidential election campaign last time round and now the local and Europeans. This is the full, full-scale um, reversal of fortune for Sinn Féin since since 1997. And um, you know, while they may have had the odd wobble or two, you know, Mary Lou McDonald losing her MEP seat in 2009, um, you know, a couple of TDs and MEPs losing their seats along the way. This is the first real setback the party has had. And the big danger they have now is that, you know, we're facing into a general election in the short and medium term. Yes, it's probably not going to happen now Mm. until next year. Um, But what you're seeing is that they have an awful lot of work to do in order to turn around their fortunes, because otherwise they stand to lose almost half their doses, you
5: know, think yeah. at the moment. Well, that 7% drop to 12 yesterday uh, will certainly uh, be a, a rude awakening for anybody uh, who's uh, not been paying attention. Uh, you've been looking at this very closely, obviously, and your report in the Irish Examiner is very detailed today, Daniel. There's a couple of people uh, that you mention on a couple of occasions, uh, David Cullinan and Louise O'Reilly. Uh, They're regulars on this programme, but uh, we're taking from your article that we're nothing special, that they're on every radio programme and are overexposed, as some would see it in Sinn Féin.
3: Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the point I was making a little bit a while ago, that there's been a kind of an overconcentration of people, you know, used in the media now. That's a, that can be a tricky thing, you know, sometimes just given the nature of the story of the day, whether it be yeah. a health story, Louise O'Reilly is the party's health spokesperson or whether it be Brexit, David Colnan has obviously been you know, to the fore on that. Mm. But I think there is a sense that the party's tone and messaging over the last year or so has been overtly negative. And I think what they've realised is that the people... On the doors, I said, "You know, why would we vote for Sinn Féin when they're angry, but they're not really coming up with the sort of constructive solutions that others are coming up with? Hmm. We want to look at the next step. The anger was fine in 2014, but we need to look beyond that now."
5: And then, Brexit, says, "You mentioned uh, that's uh, obviously a, a big issue. Uh, there's the seats in Westminster and abstentionism and all of that. Has that played into this?"
3: Yeah, one of the things that 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 um, came. Came, and it was one of the leading TDs who I spoke to, kind of wrapped all these issues in together. He said, you know, when you in, in isolation, the issues like abstentionism in, in Westminster, the no, the no, par, the no storm of assembly, mm. um, and also the kind of the party's handling of the various kind of bullying and abuse allegations of the last two or three years or so. In isolation, you might be able to defend one of them and you know defend the case or stand the line. But when you suppose they come together and are, are you know, they conflate together then all of a sudden it becomes an issue and it shows a party that really isn't in control of its own story.
5: What about um, what Padre Tobin in all of this? Uh, because uh, he's uh, been campaigning negatively, if you like, uh, against Sinn Féin after leaving uh, the party and making some very strong statements uh, about some of uh, their decisions and wisdom, for that matter.
3: Yeah, all of it, I think, has just you know helped to undermine... The competency issue. I think before, like, I don't think Finney or Sinn Fein were ever really considered to be economic powerhouses. I mean, obviously, Gerry Adams previously had gotten himself into some difficulty on the economic issue in debates. You know, his grasp of the economy was certainly one of the weaker points. Um, But, you know, and, but Sinn Fein, up until that point, really were never seen as a genuine party of government. Mary Lou MacDonald has made a virtue of the fact that they are ready to go into government. They want to play their part. Even as a minority party, even as the low, as as a smaller party in a coalition, that's a sea change in Sinn Fein thinking, and that to me, to a lot of people, and even I was one of those people mm-hmm. who thought that if you know this is their way in, this is you know them trying to normalise themselves, trying to appeal to the middle classes, trying to get them in, um, uh, you know, get them into a state where they can really challenge Fianna Fáil and eat into Fianna Fáil's kind of um uh, kind of base. But what has happened is Fianna Fáil have, are resurgent. You know, they've retaken a foothold in Dublin and elsewhere. And ultimately, people are now looking at Sinn Féin and looking, they, they, they look and appear very shaky.
4: Yeah. As
3: I said, you know, as they say themselves, they appear to have an identity crisis as to what sort of party they are going to be. Are they likely just to be a kind of a new version of Fianna Fáil, you know, kind of without the kind of the past history of wrecking the economy, but essentially very much aligned in terms of the Republican agenda and, you know, they're mm-hmm. very much slightly left to centre, Sinn Féin probably more so. Um, but, you know, they seem to be dumping some of their more radical policies, like, you know, to beat the band in relation to kind of taxing the, the super-rich and all the rest of it. They, they tend to be talking much more moderately around other things now, you know, and more realistic policies because they know they would never get some of that stuff across the line in a coalition government.
5: Okay, The politicians um, will always tell you that an opinion poll is just a, a snapshot in time, but it was a very interesting snapshot yesterday, wasn't it, uh, with that 7% drop for Sinn Féin, a 5% drop for Fine Gael, leaving them on 23 below FINA Falls 28% and, of course, a surge for the Greens, as uh, is probably expected at this stage. Does it uh, say anything about when a, an election might be called? You said you don't expect it until next year, but these polls can have uh, an influence on political thinking.
3: They certainly can, and, I, and I, I think you're absolutely right that one poll in isolation can't be deemed to be definitive or um, make or break, but I think if you're looking at a trend over, say, a six-month period... Um, then, then I think you know people will start making decisions in relation to that. Yeah. I think if you're over Fianna Gael, you know, let's just think back. I was probably on your show this time last year, Mike, mm-hmm. and, and just saying you know Fianna Gael had an eight or nine point lead over Fianna Fail. You know, Leo Racker was the most popular leader in the country. It was the right time for them to go to the election because they would have absolutely guaranteed themselves to be back in government. You're now looking at their decision not to go from a purely party political uh, perspective, and you're thinking why did they not go? Because they're now lagging behind Fianna Fail and even if this poll is wrong and even if this poll is you know, overstating the rise of Fianna Fáil and, under, and understating Fianna, Fianna Gael support they're way down on, on where they were a year ago um, and that's worrying um, the, the shift to the Greens is, is understandable given that clearly climate and climate action is very much on the agenda, the cabinet is meeting today you know, for a special climate meeting um, so it's very much in the political zeitgeist at the moment the big question and any anyone who will have in relation to the Green agenda is Do they have the candidate support and the network to capitalise on a 20% vote or an 11% vote in Dublin? Um, Probably not. So, you know, they're they're talking about winning six seats. I think they could do a little bit better on that if they get the House in order. Mm. Um, But I would certainly think, you know, it's a fickle vote. It's the sort of vote that would be with you one election and gone the next, as as we saw between 2007 and 2011. Mm And, and particularly if the Greens are as gung-ho to get back into government, they run the risk of you know being annihilated again. But that's, you know, ultimately, they, you know, listen to him and Ryan, he certainly seems that the gamble we're taking.
5: OK, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us uh, this morning. Daniel McConnell is political editor of The Irish Examiner.
0: Michael Michael Reid
5: on LMFM. Let's talk now about HAP, uh, the housing assistance payment. We heard from Focus Ireland last week and uh, a survey that they did which found that half of uh, the families involved said that they got no reply from landlords when they said that they were dependent on HAP. 93% of the families involved in the survey described looking for accommodation as very stressful or difficult uh, when Uh, They were trying to find somewhere under the HAP scheme and half said landlords were unwilling to accept HAP tenants. Let's talk about this with Margaret McCormick, Information Officer with the Irish Property Owners Association. Good morning to you, Margaret, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Is there any truth in what people are are saying? Are, Are landlords reluctant to take HAP tenants because they're obliged to take them by law, aren't they?
8: Good morning, Michael. I, I, there's, a, there's a couple of issues there. I'm, the, the first thing is it's discriminatory if you don't take somebody in receipt of HAP. Um, sorry, I don't mean it It, 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 it would be discriminatory mm. if some, you didn't take somebody because they're in receipt of HAP. Mm. So it's not a question that you actually have to take them because they're on HAP. You obviously do the normal balance and checks um, that you do in, in every mm. situation. But at the moment, the biggest problem and and the state just doesn't seem to to acknowledge it is is that we don't have enough social housing so people that should be in social housing are now in the private rental sector and then the private rental sector itself um, has insufficient amount of accommodation and again as well as that we're looking at landlords uh, 92 percent of landlords have less than three properties Mm. and they supply two-thirds of all rental accommodation so you're looking at people with, with one a property, two property, um, two properties, and they're the people that are supplying the accommodation. And when Good, they get, mm-hmm. um, when somebody applies, you know, if they put yeah. an ad up on, on somewhere like that, they can get 100, 150 replies to that.
5: Uh, and That's
8: hugely difficult. And you're talking about, in most cases here, you're talking about, I mean, 70% of people have, mm-hmm. have less than one property. If you're talking about, ordinary people here who are looking um, and they want to let the property to the the most appropriate person. That person is somebody that will... um look after the prop. we'll pay the rent, because obviously the rent has to be paid. That's the the first criteria. Well,
5: will it be paid under HAP? Uh, I mean, this is one of uh, the complaints that you hear from landlords. I I think uh, that uh, the Department uh, of Social Protection will ask you to forego what would have otherwise been a back month. So you're down a month, or you're telling the tenant that they have to find the money themselves, uh, that uh, inspections are too bureaucratic, uh, and uh, looking for perfectly good windows as we discussed last week and the programme to be replaced as an example and uh, that uh, the criterion that are applied uh, are far uh, too high Uh, or there's other issues uh, for example to do with HAP tenants uh, that uh, landlords would say that they're not getting paid. Uh, They have a, a contract with the department, the department pays them but the tenant has to pay something to the department and when they don't pay that the department doesn't pay the landlord.
8: Absolutely, Michael. There's a huge number. The system, the HAP system, is not fit for purpose, and and the process itself is letting people down. Uh, I mean, the first thing is the payments aren't guaranteed. So if the uh, tenant doesn't pay their proportion to the local authority, everything stops to the landlord. Mm. Uh, They don't pay in advance; they pay in arrears. The, The market takes rent in advance. So that's essential and it's needed. Mm. Uh,
5: so the be, department aren't paying the landlord, but the landlord can't evict the department because the department doesn't live there. So how I long will, no, uh, yeah, how, yeah. how long, uh, how long will the tenant stay in the house without paying rent?
8: Right, uh, the tenant pays their proportion to the local authority. I understand But so yeah. the contract is between the landlord and, and the de- tenant. Aren't. No, no, the oh, contract okay. is between the landlord and the tenant in this right. situation. Okay. On the half, there's other systems, that, that you're right, that, that, it's, that they pay uh, the landlord. But in this situation, it's between the landlord and the tenant. Um, but if the payment is not paid, if the tenant doesn't pay their contribution to the local authority, mm. everything stops to the landlord. Mm. So st- straight off, we've got a problem. And then that the department doesn't, the um, local authority will not communicate with the landlord. Data protection only communicates with the tenant. Mm. So you don't know what's going on uh, and there can be huge difficulties around that. Um, now, you've got to say that most people will pay, but, but that is still a worry for anybody that's going to take in that situation. The payment is, is made in arrears um, the approval takes weeks mm. um, I, I, I was talking to somebody uh, last week uh, and they were saying that they they had taken somebody in um, from the 1st of May and they still hadn't been paid anything yet so the approval takes weeks and of course it, there's there's uh, a landlord would still have to pay their outgoings during all of this or else they go into arrears right. uh, mm. they don't pay a, a deposit um, so th- there's huge problems with the system itself it, it's not fit for purpose it lets everybody down and it's something that that we need a system like that that actually functions well now we, we've got to say that we have we have a lot of people um members that that have have tenants and the tenants are wonderful mm-hmm. and the system is working for them but it doesn't work for everybody and if anybody has a problem. Um, then there's, there's just no communication. The local car authority don't communicate with the landlord. And then the landlord, if the rent isn't paid, has to go through the OTB. Uh, so the processes that are laid down in the Residential Tenancies Act, they have to serve the letters, then the, the notice, the notice uh, of termination, they, and then they have to wait for a, a hearing, uh, wait for a decision. It, there's a big, long process, and if there's something if, if if you're in a situation and and you're somebody that needs to pay your bank, the bank isn't patient. I mean, you go into to raise the bank, your credit history is shot. It's it's hugely difficult,
5: costly and bureaucratic. Yes. Uh, and is it so costly and bureaucratic uh, that landlords are are deciding that they won't rent their properties anymore?
8: Um, I think landlords will still. Always let properties. I mean, that, I mean that's the purpose they have to let. Um, uh,
5: and is it, as that Focus Ireland survey would indicate, that they're trying to let their properties to somebody other than HAP tenants?
8: I, I, I think that a landlord will take the, the tenant that is the most suitable for an accommodation. And, you know, it depends on what they're letting, where they're letting, and the references of the person that are that are coming into them. Okay. because and if they I mean again if they know them and uh, uh-huh. so, so they have they have a number of, of, of reasons to check something but there there is huge I mean it, it's got to be in the back of somebody's mind a situation where that, it, that there's no communication with the local authority and the local authority If they stop it, if the the tenant stops, Mm. they don't tell the landlord. I mean, there has to be something there. There has to be a three-way relationship in some way.
5: Okay, Margaret, I have to leave it there. I've run out of time, I'm sorry, but I have to uh, go to headlines. But thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Margaret McCormick, Information Officer with the Irish Property Owners Association, brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye.
3: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at
2: lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less
5: than clay litter.